Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is with us now. I pray that you would open our hearts by your Holy Spirit to receive your word, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be built up for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. In his name I pray, amen. You can be seated. There are plenty of passages in the Bible and in the New Testament that are countercultural and uh, that can make us squirm a bit. And uh, our epistle reading in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, certainly qualifies as a countercultural uh, text. This text pushes against our culture's belief about the body which basically says that uh, it's my body and I have the right to do with my body what I want as long as I'm not hurting another person. That, that's how our culture thinks about the use of the body. Um, the slogan goes, it's my body, my choice, in, a, in another context. But that kind of summarizes where many people are at in our culture with regard to how we are to live uh, and express ourselves in and with the body. It's understandable that non-Christians think this way, but Paul is writing here to Christians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's concerned that worldly ideas about the body is making its way into this church. And there's evidence of that in the Corinthian church. If you read this in context, which I don't have time to go into, but you can read the passage in context. And so Paul's not talking, uh, he's not addressing people out there. He's addressing Christians when he's talking about uh, these things. And he's saying that a Christian cannot think about the use of his or her body in the way that the world does. Again, the world, it's my body, I can do with my body what I want to as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, kind of the ethic. But Paul says, no, for the Christian, it's not like that. If you're a Christian, uh, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells within your body. If you're a Christian, you have been united to Jesus' body. You're members of the body of Christ. And if you're a Christian, then you've been bought with a precious, by a, a precious gift, a precious price, that is, the blood of Christ. So therefore, he he concludes this passage, glorify God in your bodies as Christians. Glorify God in your bodies. Now, this is countercultural stuff today. And I want you to know it was countercultural in Paul's day. We're not the first Christians to feel a tension between how we think about how we ought to use our bodies and how the culture thinks about this. Not the first Christians to feel that tension, especially when it comes to the issue 
of sexuality. What I want to do this morning is just to walk us through this passage to understand the Christian teaching on what it means to glorify God with our bodies. And what Christians have believed about these things for over 2,000 years. And, and as we go through it, I want us to gain some insight, though, in how we might respond to people who struggle with this teaching, who it, who, who it doesn't quite make sense to them, they have questions about it, or, or, or maybe they're even hostile to this, this teaching. So I, I have a twofold purpose here. One is to clarify the teaching, just to, to walk us through it. But then also, as we go, try to make some insights, uh, give some insight into how we might uh, help people, and maybe even some of us here today, who struggle with this, it doesn't quite make sense to them, or maybe there's even a resistance to it. Okay, so that's, that's a twofold uh, object I have in this. And the way that I've broken this passage down is three parts. Um, First of all, Paul gives a sober warning about the future. A sober warning about the future. And then he, he gives a hopeful reminder about the past. And then in the, the third part of it, the significance of our present identity. Warning about the future, a hopeful reminder of the past, and then the significance of our present identity. Um, On Thursday morning, I thought I was going to be able to hit all three parts of this, and then I realized, well, we'd be here quite a bit longer than normal if I try to do all three. So I'm going to leave the third part of it, the identity piece, that needs to be talked about on its own. So I'm going to come back to that next Sunday. Hopefully it'll be a warmer day and more people will be here. Let's hear what he has to say, the Apostle Paul, about the future, the sober warning. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit, looking forward to the the fullness of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is present now, but there's a day coming when it will come in complete fullness when Christ returns. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The kingdom of God is the place where God rules and reigns. Those who are repentant of sin and put their faith in Christ, when they die, now they go to be in the presence of God. But the day is coming when Christ will return and the kingdom of God will be ushered in fully. And so Paul is talking about that future, and he, and he gives this warning, do not be deceived, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he gives a list of sins. This is not um, everything. This is not meant to be comprehensive. It's a representative list of what this unrighteousness looks like in action, in, in bodily action what this unrighteousness looks like. And he says, do not be deceived. Don't be misled. Don't let people mislead you. 
no matter what their arguments might be, no matter how sophisticated they might be, he's saying, don't be deceived that those who practice these kinds of things, this is a representative list, they will not inherit the kingdom of God if, if they don't turn. See, if there is such a thing as a kingdom of God and God is king, then the king gets to determine how we ought to live. And if we are refusing to glorify God in our bodies, we're rebelling against this king. We're putting ourselves in opposition to the king. And so Paul is listing ways of life that take people further and further away from the life of God so that, again, if they don't repent, if they don't turn around, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is his purpose here, friends. Again, he's writing to a church that's compromising on some of these things. And the reason he's warning is he wants those who are compromising to repent. His heart is that people turn to God here, know the life of God now, and inherit the kingdom of God when the kingdom comes fully. That's his intent. He's, again, not pointing... Uh, fingers at people out there and he's not doing this in any gleeful way when he talks about people not inheriting the kingdom of God. His motivation here is compassion. He wants people to turn back to God. And so he says here that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Greek word there is porneia. Get our word pornography from this word. Originally this word meant it had to do with pain uh, for a prostitute, pornea. But then it was expanded as kind of an umbrella term to mean any sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage, outside the, the bonds of a commit, of committed love between a man and a woman. God has given us this very powerful gift of sex, and, and he wants it to be used in the context of committed love between a man and a woman. Those are the bounds that God has established for the exercise of this gift. The list continues. He says, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. So, one commentator points out that in the middle of discussing these two sexual sins, porneia and adultery, he talks about idolatry. And, and, and perhaps the reason is, is that sex can become an idol. And uh, we can put bodily pleasure above our love for God and love for our neighbor. So there's a, a link here between the idolatry and the sexual sin of porneia, sexual immorality, of all kinds, any sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage, adultery, and, and, and then he talks about idolatry. God's standard for how we are to use our body in this way, his standards are not arbitrary. God has designed this to be used in a way that leads to our good, leads to flourishing. Think about these, the sin of, of adultery just for a minute. And the destruction that happens when that sin is engaged in. Think about how people feel betrayed. How people feel used. How people 
how families are oftentimes destroyed because of the sin of adultery. And so God has designed these, God has given us these rules, these laws for our good. Outside of these boundaries, there's so much heartache and guilt and objectification of people that takes place. God wants this gift to be exercised in the context of committed love between a man and a woman. And then he continues. Now, this was countercultural in Paul's day. It's certainly countercultural, controversial, <laughs> to say the least, in our day. But he says, neither men who practice homosexuality practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. And the Greek here is very explicit about what he's talking about. There's no doubt what he's talking about in, in the Greek. Men who practice homosexuality... And the practice of homosexuality was, was very common in Greek society. It was accepted, it was widely practiced in Greek society. Some Romans, uh, I'm, I'm giving you the, context, the, the cultural background because Paul's writing in a Greco-Roman context, a, a, a culture that's shaped by Greek society and, of course, uh, Roman culture. And, and there were many people uh, in Roman society that were against the practice of homosexuality, but there were others and very prominent figures who engaged in this practice, including some of the Roman emperors that were known for engaging in this practice. Nero, for example, was known for this. And another uh, emperor, Elagabalus, hope I'm pronouncing that right, was known for this. And both of these men, Nero and Elagabalus, um, were, were known to present themselves as transgendered sometimes. And, and so um, I just bring that out because what Paul is saying is countercultural in his context, just like it is in ours. And, and not only that, but, and I'm not the first one to say this, but you know, many people look at the, the Christian tradition and they will say, you guys are backwards. You know, you're regressive in your understanding of these things. And yet, really what's happening in the contemporary culture is a going backwards to a more pagan view of sexuality. It, it was the Christian ethic, sexual ethic, that brought something new. Again, linking sexual activity to committed love. Um, and, and so when we think about this, again, this hot topic today about homosexuality, one thing I, I want to say right from the get-go, right out of the gate, is that as Christians, we are called and we must affirm the dignity and worth of every single human being, no matter if they agree with this or not, no matter what kind of practices they're engaged in, we are called to affirm the dignity and worth of every person. We're called to love everyone. But but we can we can love people and still disagree with them. And many of us and, and I, I can speak for myself, we have family members, we have friends who think differently on this topic and even are engaged in practices that we would say we don't we don't agree with this, but we can still love them. And and that's what we ought to do. We ought to love them. But then we ought to also understand why we believe what we believe, why the Christian tradition has always taught this. 
until recently. Um, and I, I want to explain this, and, and I don't have a whole lot of time. I'm just going to give you one one piece of the puzzle here of, of why the Christian tradition has stood against the practice of homosexuality. Just, just one piece of it. One problem with it is that it goes against how God designed male and female, how he has ordered our bodies. God has designed, and this is basic biology, right? God has designed men and women to complement one another so that when they come together in this union, uh, if God wills it, it can produce life. So therefore, to use the body in the practice of homosexuality is going against this design, this complementarianism that God has created, that's there in the body itself. So as Rebecca McLaughlin says, and she's a Christian writer who is same-sex attracted, and she's actually married to a man, and she has talked about her struggles, but she came out of this lifestyle. She identifies as a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. So this is what Rebecca McLaughlin says in one of her writings. She says, it's not. The world says love is love. No, the Bible says God is love. God is love and God has designed us in a particular way uh, to express sexual love in the context of committed love. So, so that's, that's why we, we need to be clear about what we believe and, 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 and the rationale, part of the rationale, about why Christians have always resisted the practice of homosexuality as, as legitimate. But as we think through the full range of New Testament teaching in this area, friends, who among us can say we're perfectly pure? Who among us can say that? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if a person looks lustfully at a woman, if a man looks lustfully at a woman, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Who among us can say that we are pure in this area? We all need God's forgiveness and we all need God's grace and help to maintain purity in this area. I was reading some coverage about what's happening in the Catholic Church on this issue and we all have heard the headlines and seen the discussion and the turmoil that's happening in the Catholic Church on this. And in this article in the newspaper, they were quoting... Um, an LGBT uh, activist, actually in Africa, which I found interesting. And this man who is leading a movement there, he said, uh, the Christians think that they are devoid of sin and that we're, we're the sinners and that, we, and that they are devoid of sin. And I don't know if that's a fair characterization or not, but that's not a Christian view, right? We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So this cannot be a thing where we feel like we are more righteous than others. No, we all need God's forgiveness and we all need God's grace. Paul goes on here, doesn't he, to list other sins? We were oftentimes uh, kind of pulled into conversations about the sexual sins of the day. But Paul lists some things here that we might be more comfortable with. Maybe we even excuse ourselves in the practice of some of these other things that do not honor God. 
He says, neither thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Drunkenness can lead to addiction. It can lead to lowering our moral inhibitions. It can lead to all kinds of social problems. We know, we've seen it. Neither thieves, nor drunkards, nor revilers. This is somebody who uses abusive speech to tear other people down and to slander them. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if you say, call somebody else a fool, you are liable to the fires of hell. And so there's other sins here. Neither swindlers, extorting people out of money, out of property. These are contrary to the will of God. And so we are not to use our hands to steal, our tongues to slander, our brains to devise ways to cheat others or to glorify God in our bodies. And Paul is saying here, inspired by the, we believe, inspired by the Spirit of God, Paul the Apostle who was commissioned by the risen Christ to teach, he, he's saying, don't be deceived. There are people, there were people then, and there are people now who are saying these things aren't really a big deal. Paul saying, don't be deceived, don't be misled, don't be led astray. Those who practice such things without repenting, without turning back, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a warning. It's a sober warning. Now, I like what the NIV Study Bible says about this. Listen to what the NIV Study Bible says about this passage. It's not that people who practice such things are automatically excluded from heaven, like one and done. No, that's not what Paul teaches. Uh, it's not what Christ teaches. It's not that people who practice such things are automatically excluded from heaven or irrevocably excluded from heaven. Like you've crossed the line too far, you can never come back. No, that's not what Paul's saying here. Uh, the NIV study Bible goes on. Christians still struggle with such things. But those who say they are a Christian and practice such lifestyles without repentance, without remorse, such people need to evaluate their lives to see if they truly believe in Jesus. They've truly given their life to Jesus. Again, without repentance, without remorse. And that's what Paul is warning about here. So he issues this sober warning about the future. And then, however, the good news is this hopeful reminder about the past. Verse 11, verse 11 says, And such were some of you. Some of you were engaged in these very things. But you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He's reminding them of God's redemptive work, how God has redeemed them through Christ. They've been redeemed, they've been bought with a price, they've been set free for a new direction, a new way of life. Some of them had been caught up in sexual sin. The, town, the, the city of Corinth was known as a city of prostitution. There was a temple there to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. There were women working in that temple as priestesses, and they engaged in ritual prostitution. That's what Corinth was known for. And some of them, most likely these Christians, had been, when they were Gentile, when they were uh, pagans, uh, involved in some of that. Some of them may have been involved in these other sins, theft, drunkenness, slander. Some of them, he's saying, some of you, you used to use your body, your hands, your mind, your brain, your, your mouth in ways that objectified your neighbor, took advantage of your neighbor, and did not glorify God. But what was God's response to you? 
Did God say, no, you've just gone too far, you've crossed the line, there's no coming back from? Did God say to you, no, you're damaged goods, I don't want anything to do with you? No. Such were some of you, but here's what God has done. He's washed you in the waters of baptism, which signify that our sins are washed away. He has justified you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Justification means that God counts you as righteous. He does not count your sins against you. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you say, I want to trust in Jesus' perfect life, because my life has not been perfect. I want to trust in Jesus' death for my sin because I cannot offer a sacrifice that will cleanse me of my sin. I want to trust in Jesus' resurrection for eternal life and new life because I cannot give myself that hope. I cannot give myself new life. I cannot give myself the hope of eternal life. I'm going to trust in Jesus. Then God sees that faith and you're united to Christ, and you're counted as righteous. His righteousness is credited to you. You've been washed. You've been justified. You've been sanctified. Sanctification means that you're set apart. You're set apart for God. You were once living for yourself, and now you've been set apart for God, and in or by the Holy Spirit, As we cooperate with the Spirit of God, He makes us more holy. He helps us to grow more and more like Christ so that we can glorify God in our bodies. And so this is a wonderful reminder, friends. This is a hopeful reminder. Because many of us here, probably, I shouldn't say many of us, but some of us, perhaps, are ashamed of our past ashamed of some of the things that we have done when we look back on it, Uh, when it comes to sins that we've committed against God and our neighbor. But the good news is if we've been united to, to Jesus by faith, God doesn't see that anymore. God doesn't see that sin anymore. You've been washed. You've been justified. You've been sanctified through Christ. Through his mercy. Such were some of us. Some of us were doing these things. But that's not us now. Why? Because of the mercy of God. The redemptive work of Christ. And so, for those of us who have lived in this faith for a while, for those of us who are older, I think it's important that we do remember our past. We remember what God saved us out of. And that will give us sensitivity to people who are still struggling with these things. Um, That's something I have to do as a parent, as I parent teenagers. I have to try to remind myself as a 51-year-old what it was like to be a 14- and 15-year-old boy. It's not an easy exercise to do. But how desperate I was to, to fit in at that age. And I did some really stupid and goofy things as a teenage boy to fit in. I dressed kind of silly. You know, I have to think about that when I see the way my kids sometimes dress. Used to wear, you guys remember parachute pants? No, I mean, I used to wear parachute pants. 
And I'd tie these. I don't remember. I know we wore parachute pants because we wanted to be like Michael Jackson, I think. That was it. Did you wear parachute pants? Uh, you're, no, you're putting why your... would you say that out loud? I don't <laughs> I'm just trying to be transparent. So you did not fall into this trap. It was even worse. I, wore, I put bandanas around these parachute pants. I don't remember why I did that. Imagine me going around in parachute pants with bandanas, thick glasses, a bull haircut. Why? I was trying to fit in. Wanted to be part of the cool crowd. Didn't work, but I wanted to be. Many people are today, especially young people, are doing things with their bodies and to their bodies out of a desperate attempt to fit in. It's not the only motivation. There's layers here. I don't have time to go into all this, but that's part of what's happening in our culture. When you've taken away this idea that your identity is you're a child of God and you're redeemed and loved by God, you're going to look for identity somewhere else. And the culture is with open arms saying, if you walk this way, we will embrace you. And, and that's part of what's going on. And so we have to, as a church, especially those of us who've lived this life for, for some time, remember, such were some of you. Remember where we came from. Remember how we struggled with some of these things and how we still are pulled in ways that we're not, we wouldn't want to, we, we, we still struggle with things that make us feel ashamed and guilty. And so we have to remember that, friends, there, there's no sin except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is resistance to the Spirit that God can't forgive. There's no sin except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which God cannot forgive. There's no lifestyle from which God cannot save. There's no sin that God cannot wash away. There's no sinner He cannot justify. There's no one who's rebelling against Him now that God cannot take and turn him into a saint or her into a saint. There's no hard heart that God cannot soften with His love. And that happens by the work of the Spirit and that happens when people who are rebelling against this king realize this king died for me. And they're transformed by the love of Christ. So this is hopeful. This is, this is hopeful, friend. This, this is the kind of hope that comes from uh, the redemptive love of God and the power of God in Jesus Christ. This is supernatural hope. The world cannot give this kind of hope. In our gospel reading, Jesus says to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things as you follow me. And then he says that he's opened up the way to heaven. The Son of Man has opened up the way to heaven. Jesus opens up to us a way of interacting with the living God so that when we have a relationship with God, we can have hope and we can have power that we did not have on our own. And that's what we want to communicate to people. I'll close with this. I heard this just last week, a testimony of a man who's now a Lutheran pastor in Los Angeles County, California. When he was a young man, he got involved in all kinds of sexual immorality, including a homosexual lifestyle. And then through a series of events, he got connected to a church that 
reached out to him and, and helped him and, and was not afraid to speak the truth, but to speak it in love. And his resistance began to break down and he came to a place where he said, you know, I, I, I feel like this is wrong. I don't want to live this way anymore. He, he repented of this and he started to walk in new life. And he said to himself, oh, I'll probably never be able to get married. And uh, I don't know if anybody would ever want to take me. But he did have this inkling. Not, not everybody coming out of that lifestyle has this, but in his case, he had this desire. Uh, he said, I, I, I would like to get married someday, but I doubt that anybody would ever take me based on what I've done. But then he said, the impossible happened, and he did find a lady who wanted to marry him. And he was married in 2012. And in this interview, just a couple of weeks ago, he said, we just celebrated the birth of our fourth son. And he said, I'm going to quote here his words. I know that in a life submitted to the cross, God crucifies the flesh. He reconciles us to him and makes us new. And he said, every day when I wake up and I hold one of my sons, I experience the mercy and grace of God. That he does not leave us as he found us. He loves us enough to not leave us as he found us. And so, brothers and sisters, as we think about these things, what it means to glorify God in our bodies. I want you to know God does not leave us as he finds us. He's continually working on us by the Spirit of God to make us more and more like his Son, Jesus Christ, to bring his, him glory. That's the hope we have. And if you're struggling with some of these things, I want to leave you with that hope. He does not leave us alone. And he does not leave us as he's found us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word on these matters that, again, today in our culture, just like in Paul's day, raise a lot of question, raise tension. But you've given us these things for our good. And we, we pray for our friends, we pray for our neighbors, we pray for people in the church and outside of the church who struggle with these things. We pray for ourselves, Lord who struggle with these things, that you would give us the grace to communicate and to know this truth and to speak it and share it with love. We want to see ourselves walk in greater freedom and we want to see other people walk in greater freedom when they experience the truth and love of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.